remember this, that uh, it's always easy to make an allegation. It's a sad fact of human nature that people make allegations that are, are not true. And they, and this is Bruce McClintock. He's a barrister and one of Australia's most well-known defamation lawyers. He's worked for some of the biggest media companies in the country, acting for Kerry Packer in his case against the Sydney Morning Herald, Ben Robert Smith in his case against nine newspapers, and... I suppose the case for Geoffrey Rush against News Limited. It's that case, the Geoffrey Rush case, that a lot of the people that I've been speaking to say marks the beginning of the end of Me Too in Australia. Kate McClymont from the Sydney Morning Herald tells me exactly that. Um, Bruce, there are a lot of reporters, people like Kate McClymont, for example, um, as well as some lawyers that I've spoken to that really point to the Rush case as the moment that stopped further reporting in the, in the context of, quote unquote, Me Too in Australia, um, that that case meant that the stakes became too high for those kinds of stories to be reported on anymore. Um, what do you think of that? Oh, I think it's rubbish. Myself, you can hardly dignify what the Telegraph did in that case in those articles as journalism. It wasn't. It was one of the worst examples of journalism that I've ever seen. I do not believe that that case uh, provided any inhibition on the responsible reporting of Me Too allegations. From Schwartz Media and 7am, I'm Ruby Jones, and this is Everybody Knows. In this series, I'm investigating why, four years on from Me Too, so little has changed for women in Australia. Why there's still so much silence and fear surrounding harassment. Why it's still tolerated, still an open secret in so many industries. Why perpetrators aren't scared, but victims are. And one of the things they're most afraid of is the legal threats they face when they want to share their stories. In this episode of Everybody Knows, I'm going to look at how the law is used to silence women and the media when it comes to sexual harassment and misconduct and what that means for my own investigation. This is episode three, A Broken System. For the past few months, I've been investigating harassment, abuse and misogyny in the Australian music industry. Okay, so let's talk about where we're at right now. Mm. You spoke to... In particular, at the music label Sony. My producer, Ruby, and I have now spoken to more than a dozen women. Some were in very senior roles, others more junior some of those women have left the company, others are still there, hoping that they can make a difference from the inside. I've already told some of their stories, but there's more, a lot more. I've done an interview with a woman who's had experiences with this man. Mm. She seems happy to, to put her real name to it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's now just a matter of kind of working out what sort of level of anonymity or not she's comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the women that you were speaking to? So... Right now, there's a man who works for Sony in a senior role. 
I know of five women who've had experiences with this man, from bullying to sexual discrimination. But most of them are scared of speaking openly. They're very scared of being sued, but they're also just scared for their careers. They're scared that, you know, if their name is Googled, it's going to be the first thing that comes up about them and they just, they don't want this to be the defining feature of their lives. These women want to tell their stories. They want perpetrators to be held to account, but they're worried about being sued if they do it. And this person also asked me point blank about defamation law. She was like, well, can you say, like, can I say all of this? Can you put all of this to air? Will I get sued? She was literally like, will I get sued? Mm. And it's so, I mean, it's so interesting. I have to tell my sources that, yes, that is the risk here in Australia. If they decide to go public and tell their story, they could end up in court. There's a possibility that they could be sued, that I could be sued, that you could be sued, yeah. that the company could be sued. Yeah. <laughs> Like, the, it's, a, it's a very real risk. Mm. It's a total minefield. What could happen, and in fact does happen quite a lot if you make an allegation, is that the person named isn't happy and takes you to court. You end up in a lengthy, costly trial with survivors and witnesses being cross-examined and you could end up having to retract the story and pay damages. The stakes are high. And this is a very real possibility for the story I'm investigating. So I want to know more about how I should navigate it and what I need to do to avoid that happening. Talking to someone who's spent a lot of time in courtrooms, cross-examining witnesses in defamation trials, seems like a good place to start. Most of the defamation cases that I've been involved in involve not a failure of the law but a failure of journalism and a failure by the journalist in question to do his or her job properly. According to defamation lawyer Bruce McClintock, the only journalists who need to worry about being sued are those who aren't doing their job properly. He's been a defamation lawyer for a long time he graduated from law in the 70s, but says the decision to specialise in this area of the law kind of crept up on him. I didn't start doing it because I particularly wanted to do it. And in fact, in some ways, I've always thought it's a, it, it was a bit like that a horror movie from the 50s called The Creature from the Black, the Black Lagoon, where innocent people are walking past the Black Lagoon and this monster comes out and, and drags them into the lagoon and drowns them. I, that was a bit like what it, getting into defamation law was for me. Um, so the, mon- the monster is defamation law. The, monster's, is that- <laughs> the, monster is, the monster is defamation law. Bruce thinks that the monster, defamation law, is doing what it's supposed to, protecting people's reputations. People can genuinely be the victims of journalistic failures and those failures can do terrible damage to people and to innocent people. There are many examples I could give you, one of which was a not so long ago, actually, a school teacher who was completely falsely accused by the Sydney Morning Herald of having had sexual intercourse with two Year 12 boys. It was, in fact, another teacher at the same school who had been sacked. And that, not surprisingly, did really serious damage to my client, who was, as I said, totally innocent. In a case like that, a case of the wrong identity, things are pretty cut and dried. It's 
clearly a mistake and it's probably right that if a person is harmed by that mistake, they have some recourse. This way of looking at defamation law, that it protects ordinary people from journalists' mistakes, is Bruce's main argument in favour of the system working as it is. He says it's succeeding in this, which is, according to him, its crucial purpose. And there's no example, according to Bruce, where that's more apparent than in Geoffrey Rush versus The Daily Telegraph. In that case, Rush successfully sued the paper over an article that alleged inappropriate behaviour, and he received damages of $2.9 million. It's important to remember that Bruce represented Geoffrey Rush. And why, why do you say that it was bad journalism in this case? Oh, it would take me too long to, to tell you why it was bad journalism. It, it was based on second and third-hand hearsay for a start. There was an abject failure to, to check the story properly. There was a whole series of things that were, that were wrong with it. It would take me too long. It's all, it's all set out in, in the judgment by the trial judge and by the full court. I've read the judgment. It's long, more than 900 paragraphs. And in it, Justice Michael Wigney, who's the judge presiding over the case, describes the newspaper's articles as recklessly irresponsible journalism. He found that the articles in the Daily Telegraph conveyed several defamatory imputations, including that an ordinary reader was likely to consider a person who engaged in the conduct to be a quote-unquote pervert. In the Geoffrey Rush case, you could hardly dignify the articles there with the name journalism. They were, that was just tabloid trash at its worst. It was just a, well, I won't say anything more about that. But no, I, I actually think that um, provided journalists do their job properly, there's plenty of scope for success in, in this area. Are you saying then that, that stories like the Rush one could just be told better and then they wouldn't run into this? Well, I mean, the, 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 difficulty, the difficulty in that case was that the judge there, um, after hearing evidence both from Geoffrey Rush and from other members from the, of the cast and from the, and from the actress who, who was making the allegations, who, who I might say had had no contact with the Telegraph prior to the publication, ultimately came to the conclusion that he didn't believe her. That was the reason why Geoffrey Rush won that case. Bruce is basically saying these courts are the right forum to decide who is right or wrong. And that sounds like a straightforward proposition, but things are more complicated than that. It can come down to who has the most resources, who has the best lawyers, who is willing to sit in a courtroom and be interrogated. It's a messy process, but the ramifications of it and of a judgment like the one in the Rush trial can be huge. Speaking from personal experience as a journalist, to me, a big issue here is is the threat of defamation law and the way that the threat acts as a deterrent to pursuing stories. It creates this barrier to, to publishing because of the potential cost, even if a story is watertight. I mean, you can have a story that has multiple sources, and even if we think that we could potentially win a legal case, the cost of going through that and, and the pressure that would put on, um, on the organisation, on the journalist, and also potentially on the sources makes it, um, you know, unviable to publish. So do you accept that the, the, the threat of defamation law and the way that 
recent cases have played out have had that impact? That, that's, hard, that's hard for me to know looking because I, I look in as an outsider. And one thing that I, I will say is this, that, that I, I can appreciate how in smaller organisations that might well be the fact, although it's, it, it is unfortunate. And one of the unfortunate things that, that's happened in Australian journalism over the years is that, the, is that because of the decline of print media and the decline in the revenues of print media, there's less money available to defend journalists. But in the, in, in the end, I would have thought that any journalist who does their job properly and backs it up in the way that you've suggested can publish with complete freedom. But if, if what you tell me is true, I think it's sad and I, I don't want to sound gender biased, but I, I think the, the, the media in that case in situations should, should man up and publish if they back the story up. The way that Bruce McClintock talks about the law is pretty common, particularly among barristers, people well-versed and used to operating within the legal system. He's telling me that the system as it stands is working, that it's a balancing act and the balance is right. That doesn't mean that the system is perfect, but that it is giving people equal access to justice. But that position is far from universal because there is another way of looking at defamation law, particularly in relation to Me Too. What lawyers can tell you is that for all of the high-profile cases that end up going to trial, there are a few of them, there are so many more defamation threats that are sent to newspapers and to women threatening defamation proceedings. I'm discovering that there's a growing recognition among some lawyers that defamation action, it's actually being used in a way that protects the powerful, that things are uneven, and that the law is being used as a weapon. And this is the unseen problem, the problem that you don't see, which is the amount of proceedings which are threatened, which ultimately result in people self-censoring and not speaking publicly. That's after the break. This is what happens when Hollywood takes over the High Court. A-lister actor Johnny Depp, who spent the last 30 years walking the red carpet, still managed to play to the crowd as he began his libel action against the Sun newspaper's publishers. The case revolves around his... Back in 2016, Hollywood actress Amber Heard accuses Johnny Depp of domestic abuse while filing for divorce. After that, an article in the British tabloid The Sun calls Depp a wife-beater. Depp sues the paper. And that's when Jennifer Robinson comes in. I have acted for Amber Heard in relation to defamation proceedings, in relation to a newspaper report by The Sun. Jennifer Robinson is an internationally acclaimed human rights and media lawyer, And during this case, she's often seen hand-in-hand with Amber Heard as they make their way through large and sometimes hostile crowds outside the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Depp is due to give evidence for the next two days in this blockbuster trial, which Amber Heard says she never wanted. Amber agrees to testify for The Sun. But here's where it gets really interesting. Because in 2018, while that legal action is underway... 
Amber writes an opinion piece in the Washington Post. In it, she says that she became a public figure representing domestic abuse and that she felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. The article goes on to discuss the Me Too moment and the backlash that she experienced. It never mentions Johnny Depp by name. But despite that, he sues again. This time, he sues Amber Heard personally for $50 million. So Johnny's lawyers say Johnny's career has been su- has suffered because of the abuse allegations she made against him, including Johnny being dropped from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Uh, yeah, if you remember, Amber wrote a- Johnny Depp lost that first defamation case against the Sun newspaper, but the second one against Amber Heard personally is ongoing, and Jennifer Robinson is in the middle of it, so she can't really talk about it publicly. But she does want to talk about defamation law and the effect that she thinks it's having on women, on the media and on our ability to confront abuse and harassment. I became more and more interested in the interaction between media law and the Me Too movement because we're seeing this onslaught of defamation claims being brought against both newspapers and women who speak out about their experience of sexual or domestic violence. Jennifer Robinson totally disagrees with Bruce McClintock on this. She thinks the balance is completely off and that something needs to change. She tells me that there's been a lot written and a lot said about the effect of the criminal justice system on women. We know about how difficult it can be for women to report these crimes and then be questioned in court over and over again. But less has been written about their experience in the civil system and defamation proceedings, but we see many of the same issues come up in terms of the kinds of questioning of women's credibility, the gendered nature of those questions, and women's experience in the judicial system. In defamation proceedings, it can in some ways be more traumatic than the criminal justice proceedings because your accuser is in control of the proceedings. There's even examples of cases around the world where not the counsel but the man himself has questioned the woman in court about what happened. And so it is a very traumatic experience. So what Jen is saying is that in a civil case, the man himself, the one suing for defamation, He can be in charge of the proceedings. He's on the attack. He's the one asking the questions. He's running the case. And I have had numerous women who have been sued personally by their partner who they accused of abuse talk about how they felt that the proceedings brought against them were, in a way, a way of them continuing the abuse after having left the relationship. Even though you've left a relationship which is abusive, you are constantly hearing from them. You are constantly hearing from their lawyers. You are, they have, um, they they can seek disclosure from you about your personal life. There is a reason why women who have faced these kinds of cases talk about it as in some ways a continuation of the abuse. And it's a shame that it can be so difficult can look at women around the world who have decided to speak up publicly and, and their experiences and the stress of what that's meant for them, but also 
on the positive side of that, we've seen a lot of change come about because women have been brave enough to speak out. So I think there is a risk, but sometimes it's worth taking and it's important to take legal advice to make sure you're very aware of what the potential consequences could be. Despite the difficulties that Jennifer Robinson is outlining, women, some women, are still speaking up. And that's because they want to protect others, protect potential future victims, to make a difference. But creating that change takes bravery. It's always a risk. Hi, Ruby. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm good. Thanks. So Client privilege means that I can't record and broadcast conversations with Schwartz Media's lawyers, but I do want to talk through some of the issues that I'm facing with my investigation into Sony. So I talked to another prominent lawyer in the field. So could I get you to introduce yourself? Michael Bradley, managing partner of Mark Lawyers. Michael Bradley is an Australian lawyer with a special interest in Me Too and defamation. He's represented victims and he's worked with journalists to get stories ready for publication. As you know, I've been working on a story for a while now. Um, It's a Me Too story about the music industry and my producer and I, we've spoken to dozens of women now. Um, A lot of them work or have worked at Sony. Um, And the sorts of allegations that we're hearing, some of them are pretty serious, but there's one particular um, person that has come up. There are multiple women now who have made allegations about them. They're still at the company. um, And so I just wanted to kind of ask you, well, I wanted to talk through that with you in terms of the, the legal risks that we're taking if we do want to try and name someone, but we only have anonymous allegations to put to air. Yep. What are your thoughts? The thing that um, we always advise media organisations is with this type of um, stories to prepare the story like you're preparing for court, for trial. You know, you've got to assume you're going to be sued and you've got to prepare for war. So take detailed statements. Um, so in some cases we take sworn statements put them in a, in a statute declaration form um, so that there's a sort of an early sworn record of, of what of their evidence, gather together all of the evidence, supporting evidence, whatever exists, whether that's um, complaints to other people or to police or whoever, uh, any physical evidence or diaries or, uh, you know, whatever, anything that actually that, you know, supports the factual allegations. And what about if there isn't much of that kind of evidence? Yeah, look, you know, if if the situation is that what you have is a complainant who has a story, who says, this happened to me, he did this to me, and there's no other evidence other than, you know, her um, testimony of that, and that's all you've got to go on, then you have to make an assessment of the strengths and risks attached to that. And, And that's not really a question of, you know, is she telling the truth? Because generally speaking... Complainants don't lie. So we know that these have been lodged with Sony's internal investigation, these mm-hmm. complaints. That's one, that's the other. Okay. 
So where does all of this leave me? After having these conversations, I do feel better prepared, but I'm also worried. The challenges to reporters could not be more clear. And I feel a huge responsibility to my sources to make sure that I've done everything I can to avoid legal action being taken against them. So this first one is three pages long. Um, They're both pretty long. They're quite detailed. Okay. And now my producer Ruby and I are in the studio trying to work out what we can publish as part of the next stage of our Sony investigation. She's got something that might help us. This is interesting because it sounds like they've seen and, like, witnessed a lot of this kind of behaviour firsthand. Mm -hmm. And then they also have their own personal story with this particular person. What we have is formal complaints that have been lodged to Sony as part of their ongoing internal investigation. The complaints are about a senior executive who still works for the company. The person that we've been hearing about from all of these women. It's pretty damning stuff. Yeah, it is. That's next week on Everybody Knows. Everybody Knows is brought to you by 7am and Schwartz Media. The show is produced by Ruby Schwartz. Osman Faruqi and Claire Rawlinson are the executive producers, with special thanks to Madison Connaughton. Eric Jensen is editor-in-chief. Mixing and sound design by Atticus Basto. Our theme music is an original composition by Rainbow Chan. Additional reporting in this series by Ruby Schwartz. Episode 4 will be in your feed next Wednesday, September 15. Make sure you're following Everybody Knows in your favourite podcast app. And if you want to get in touch, you can contact me over email. Everybody Knows Podcast at protonmail.com. I'm Ruby Jones. Thanks for listening.